The Parat Favel Generation X podcast is powered by Biscuit Tees and Favel Fitness, bringing you unique comfort and style while optimizing a healthy organic lifestyle. What is your secret to uh, staying so young? I mean, you don't age. Are you, like, super healthy or you just have good genes? Like, what's going I, I, on think, I think it's a combination. I'm um, very healthy. I'm 85. I turned 85 last uh, Thanksgiving. And um, I, I feel fantastic. I'm never, I shouldn't even say this, but I'm never sick. <laughs> I, I, I don't catch colds. I, I don't get the flu. I don't get uh, earaches or anything. I mean, my wife is 20 years younger than me, and she's always complaining about this or that. And <laughs> and I'm just uh, very lucky. My, I guess I have good genes. My dad uh, actually was in a car accident when he was 87, and he died. And um, my mother was in her 80s. So uh, my sister turns 90 in July, and she's healthy and uh, on her own. So I'm, I'm lucky. Plus, I, I think a lot of it has to do with keeping active and enthusiastic. I've always been, you know, uh, enamored of uh, innovation and uh, doing things. Uh, you know, I'm not, to me, I, if I'm not doing something every minute, I, I feel unproductive. I mean, I have a radio show, as you know, you were on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I just finished a book, which will be published in the spring called On Thin uh, in the uh, fall called On Thin Ice, uh, my memoir about the uh, liars and, and spectrum getting started back in the 60s. What else have I got? I'm trying to think. I've got a few. Oh, I'm trying to open a sports museum. I was going to say, there's that little museum of sports thing. Right, right. And we have over $35 million worth of uh, valuable wow. artifacts, including the uh, Chuck Bednarik jersey. Uh, our collection, is, uh, it's not my collection. It's the collection of Dr. Nicholas DePache, a colleague of mine. And he's been collecting for 30-some years. But it's international. He doesn't just have Philadelphia stuff. He, he's a New Yorker to begin with. And he has tons of Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Lou Gehrig and Joe Lewis's um, heavyweight championship belt and Joe DiMaggio's World Series ring from 1950 when they beat the, uh, the Phillies. He's got Jesse Owens track shirt from 1936 when he thumped his nose at Hitler as he ran by wow. uh, at the, in the Olympics. Uh, he's got incredible things. He has the um, business suit that Joe DiMaggio wore the day he married Marilyn Monroe, wow, wow. her wedding dress, their marriage license, and their divorce decree, all, wow. in, all in one exhibit. So he's got incredible stuff. Wow. Oh, my God. That's that's amazing. And that's like rare stuff that you don't you know see everywhere. It's just that's that's going to be fun. We're looking forward to that. Well, How's we're everything going with the, um, planning it, and. It's been difficult in uh, Philadelphia. We did not get the support of the teams. Uh, for some reason, they feel it's not one of their charities. We're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. And uh, they each have their own interests and their own things. And basically, team owners are greedy. They're money machines. And they will tell you they want to own and operate everything. And they didn't take kindly to my idea of opening a sports museum uh, across the street from, from uh, the stadium complex. Even though we signed a lease with a warehouse to open the museum there in 20,000 square feet. And we spent over a quarter million dollars on architects and all kinds of uh, fees and permits and things. And they were not only not in favor of it, they were against it. So uh, any investors or 
or contributors that contacted them were dissuaded from uh, helping us. So we moved away from that location, which was spectacular. And we're looking in Center City. We're looking in Penn's Landing and a few other places. Uh, meantime, Dr. Depache is opening a, a demonstration museum in Deptford, New Jersey uh, in September. So we'll at least be able to show maybe 20% of our collection and invite people over from Philadelphia who might want to be an angel and help us get started in, in, in Philly. So how does that work? Is it like a temporary setup for um, the museum? Yeah, he's um, he wants to open something. And, uh, and while we're searching for the perfect place in Philadelphia, he wants to have a small place in New Jersey where uh, he can demonstrate or uh, display some of his uh, materials because they're not doing anybody any good sitting in a warehouse. Right. It's just amazing like that would fit so perfectly in that area with the stadiums and how it is down there. It's a shame that you don't have the support from the teams because it would really... That whole area is building up. I think it would fit perfectly in there. It's surprising. But again, you know, it's all about the, the dollar. It's business. It's business. Day, I it's business. I, I rubbed a few people the wrong way, and um, they weren't happy with me. I will say the 76ers were very generous. Uh, that's all I'll say. <laughs> they were, uh, about, I'm not saying anything about the other teams, but they, they, they just weren't interested. Well, I'm glad that you're keeping it going, and eventually where it ends up, it's going to be um, where it's meant to be, and it's going to be incredible. I'm excited. Well, we'll get we'll get it done someday, and I, yeah. I want to be the first drunk ejected from the museum on opening night. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we're there for that. That'll be fun. Well, I, I'd like to say that because um, Ed Snyder was the first drunk, I would say, helped out of the spectrum no. on opening night. Uh, he was so <laughs> exhausted and drained from getting the fire started and getting the spectrum open, which had gone into receivership because Jerry Wallman, who started the whole project, went under and Ed had to pick up the pieces. And um, getting the flyers started, financed, and getting the spectrum open took a tremendous amount of energy on all of our parts, especially him, because he was he was the man. And on opening night, we had uh, it was uh, September 30th of 1967, uh, a Saturday night and a Sunday night, I believe it was. And we had the uh, annual Quaker City Jazz Festival, and it wasn't over till like two in the morning. And Ed and I had been pounding uh, <laughs> <laughs> some drinks, and he was he was so out of it that, that we had to help him out of the building. So, uh, <laughs> but I will say he he also uh, had enough energy to jump over a police barricade. <laughs> <laughs> Which was between him and his car. We, we we didn't let him drive, but he was the first drunk uh, out of that well, building. I think he earned that for sure. <laughs> right. So how did you meet uh, Mr. Snyder? Well, everybody asked me that because, you know, so many people want to get into sports. I mean, you can't all be uh, Doug Favelle or Bernie Perron or uh, Mike Schmidt, but uh, you can work in sports. I mean, today there's a million jobs in sports. You know, we had nine people in the office at the Flyers when we started. The 76ers had even fewer. And I was a reporter covering politics in City Hall in Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Daily News. And uh, uh, Ed Snyder was vice president of the Eagles at that time. And he and I became friendly because the uh, mayor of Philadelphia was trying to strong arm the Eagles into playing in a stadium that hadn't been built yet. And they already had a lease to play in a stadium in South Philadelphia which was going to be built. But the mayor, Mayor Tate, 
uh, tried to push them around and tell them you're going to play in a stadium that's going to be built over 30th Street Station and uh, we're doubling your rent from what you originally signed and uh, so they sued the city and I'm a reporter I don't know them uh, I'm covering the mayor and I dig into it and I, I uh, find out that the mayor has an interest in bringing in an American Football League team which would have been illegal because the Eagles had an exclusive professional football license so I break the story wow. Snyder calls me and and uh, Jerry Wallman calls me and they want to meet me and give me information and I became socially friendly with Ed and uh, he, he kept trying to hire me hire me at the Eagles they bought Yellow cab company that I want to run a cab company that I wanted uh, they'd started NFL films that I want to do that and I said no I'm a reporter I love journalism I, I like to wake up in the morning and write a story and read about it the next morning and then one day he said to me, listen, we're, we're going to try and get a franchise in the National Hockey League for Philadelphia. If we get that, we have to build a new arena. Would you be interested in helping run that? I said, you get that, I'm in. <laughs> About three weeks later, Ed calls me and he says, we got it. Are you in? And I, without consulting my wife or anybody, I said, I'm in. <laughs> well, people thought I was crazy because hockey didn't exist in Philadelphia, except at, at such a minor league level and a, not a good one. And building an arena that wasn't really needed in Philadelphia and, and a hockey team that had no history, a city that had no history. And I thought, wow, what a challenge. Take a clean piece of paper and draw things and write things. And I hear I'm a sports fan and I'm going to do things the way I would like to see it done as a sports fan. So he and I, for 20 some years, were uh, best friends, got the fire started, got the spectrum started. And uh, then we started Prism, the pay television network. And then we started Spectacore and uh, opened restaurants and minor league teams and uh, consulting with uh, arenas and conventions around the United States. And for 53 years until the day he died, he and I were just best friends. Wow. And I know there's a quote somewhere where he said that you are the most creative person he's ever met, something of that sort. But uh, yeah. the two of you together. Right. He gave me uh, a lot of latitude because he, he knew I, uh, I knew what he wanted and I knew what the fans wanted. At least I thought I did. And it turned out I, I was mostly correct. And he let me do my thing. And um, I was... Um, I wouldn't say I was undisciplined, but I was pretty creative. Some of the things that I did, including the Kate Smith legend and uh, naming the spectrum and uh, promoting the Broad Street Bullies to the point where they became a North American icon. We just did so many things. And I used to, I call us flash and cash. He was cash. So with my ideas, my ideas and his money, we, we had a good time. Hey, that's the perfect combo right there. But uh, that, you hit on a couple of points I wanted to ask you about. How did the whole Kate Smith thing come to fruition? How did you pull her in and the story behind that? During the Vietnam War uh, in the 60s, um, there was a lot of unrest. There was racial uh, strife uh, like there is today. Uh, there was the Vietnam War protests. And America was not a happy place. It was a little scary times. And uh, at our games, I, I noticed that people were not paying attention to the national anthem. Buyers games, 76ers games. They would walk around. They would eat. They would smoke. <laughs> they would uh, sleep. You know, they would doze off. And 
And I thought, you know, what would happen if they didn't have their national anthem? If that would take it away from him. So I, I mentioned Dead Snyder one day. I think I'm going to play a different song one night. He says, what are you, crazy? <laughs> no. Uh, I listened to a whole bunch of records. And I, in an old uh, used record place on uh, South Street, I found a, uh, a recording from Kate Smith that she sang back in the 30s. And uh, it was God Bless America. So I take this record and I take it to the spectrum and I go into the sound booth and I ask the electrician, can you play this? He says, well, we don't have a record player here. He says, I'll have to convert it to tape, real to real tape. I said, can you do that? He said, yeah. I said, after five o'clock when the building's dark and everybody leaves, let's play it tonight. Can you stay and make a little overtime? And he said, sure. So uh, 5.30, I went out into the stands and gave him the signal and he played God Bless America. Kate Smith singing it. So I sat in the first row. Then I went up to the last row. And then I went into the corners and I asked him to keep playing it and playing it. And I thought, my gosh, this is so patriotic. It's so stirring. It's fantastic. So I, I, I didn't do anything for a while. Now, the Flyers didn't win very many games uh, back in 69, uh, which is when we first played it. But one day I decided I'm going to play it. And uh, Toronto was in town speaking of Toronto, and uh, they, they would normally kill us. Uh, the original six teams would just beat up on the expansion team so badly, and uh, we we won very few games. Well, I decided to play it that night, and Lou uh, Nolan hadn't started. He started uh, a few years later, but the, um, the announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, would you please stand and join in singing as Kate Smith sings God Bless America. Well, the crowd goes, what? What? <laughs> what? And, and then the song starts and people were like buzzing and Ed Snyder jumped up from his seat in the super box and came over and cursed me out. <laughs> screaming and yelling. Now, he had a, a very uncomfortable thing that he did where he got in your face. I mean, he got in your face and you're almost nose to nose. It was very uncomfortable. And I'm backing away and he's moving forward and he is telling me everything I should have done and not done. And I said, Ed, I told you I was going to do this. He says, yeah, but I didn't think you were nuts enough to actually do it. So the song is finished. The period, first period starts, we score, we hit, we fight. Second period, we score, we hit, we fight. By the end of the game, I forget the score. It might have been like 6-3 or something. It was a, it was the Flyers looked like the Montreal Canadiens, you know, playing <laughs> Toronto. And people are coming up the aisle at the end of the game, and Ed Snyder would sit right at the corner of the super box with his elbow practically in the aisle. And Mr. Snyder, that was the greatest idea. You've got to play that. That should be our national anthem. What a great idea. Well... <laughs> I'm standing about 30 feet away from him, just watching and watching. And he turns, looks at me and shakes his head like, and he gets up and he comes over and he goes, you son of a, you know what? He said, I don't know. I don't know. He says, you're going to get me killed one day, but just keep doing it. Oh, that's awesome. I never knew the, the story behind that. So that was the so, beginning. That was the first time we played it. Was there a copyright it. problem, like using her song? Was there a well, problem you know, at the beginning? Well, you know, it's funny, funny you ask that because in 2010, now this was 69, so 31, 41 years later, we're playing the Blackhawks in the um, Stanley Cup in 2010. And the game is being shown in Chicago, where the Kate Smith family uh, lives. And they see it on the scoreboard for the first time, Kate Smith's picture and her singing the video. And um, they contacted us a couple of days later and they said, do, do you do you have the rights to do this? No. <laughs> it's 2010. And they checked with me, the lawyer, uh, Phil uh, Weinberg from um, 
Spectacor checked with me and did, did we ever get the rights? I said, no, what rights? <laughs> <laughs> We've just been doing this forever. So they were nice people. They said, it's okay. We just we never knew that this happened. But I don't know how much time we have, but I, I, I have a very interesting Kate Smith story because we tried to get her live to come to the Spectrum and sing at a game. We had only used the record for several years and uh, we, we kept contacting her agent in New York to get her to come. And he, he refused to even tell her about it. She didn't know about it. And he, he said, uh, Miss Smith sings for kings and queens for the Pope at the Olympics. She doesn't <laughs> sing at a hockey game in Philadelphia. He says, besides if she would, you couldn't afford it. He was really snotty, this guy. Wow. So by a miracle, she had an elderly uncle living in West Philadelphia who sent her clippings of her being a good luck charm for the Flyers. Well, she goes to her agent and she said, look at what these flyers are doing. My uncle sent me these clippings. Do you think they would ever let me come down and sing? No. <laughs> That's amazing. And he says to her, uh, well, I, I, I would have to tell you they have been trying. And she said, well, I want to go down there. And so he called us and he said, uh, against my better judgment, Miss Smith would like to come down. But again, you can't afford it. She gets $25,000 in appearance in 1969. That's a lot of money. Uh, make me an offer, but don't insult me. And I said $5,000. And uh, he said, that's an insult. You insulted me. So I said, well, that's all we got. He calls back. He said, Miss Smith said she'll do it. So I go in. I said to Ed Snyder, you know, you know, we've been trying to get uh, Kate Smith for so many years. And he says, yeah, what, what, what's the problem there? So I tell him, he says, well, you got to get her. I said, we got her. He said, how much? <laughs> I said, I said, $10,000. He said, $10,000. We can't afford $10,000. My partners will kill me. This and that. He said, but we, we got to do it. I'll find the money. I said, well, it's only 5,000. He goes, you son of a, you know what? I said, Hey, I just saved you $5,000. And you're cursing me out again. Yeah. It's meant to be. I mean, the whole story of how all that came to you finding the album to playing it, you know, everyone loving it. And then her hearing about it, wanting to cut like it's just it's such a cool story definitely was meant to it, be and now still all these years later playing it, you know playing it goes a long way clubs. kim like my mom still to this day kate smith kate smith anytime the flyers play if they play the video you know stuff like that obviously that meant a lot to her and you know that's something she still talks about to this day so that's that story means that that was huge i'd never heard that before and that's that's amazing well, it, it so happens that uh, we played it um, in the, you know, she, she came live when we played Boston and we won the Stanley Cup. I think it was a one, two to nothing or I forget what it was, one to nothing. And, and then the following year, Toronto was our opening game. And um, I brought her back for that opening game. And uh, a fellow by the name of Doug Favell, who played for Toronto, <laughs> was quoted after the game saying, as soon as they rolled out the organ and the red carpet, he said, I knew we were cooked. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, that probably came back to haunt my dad right. <laughs> from those, those Toronto days. So the, the, your dad your dad was smart enough to know that if Kate was singing live, nobody had a chance. <laughs> That's funny. I love just the whole history of that. And, and like for you to have been a part of making all that happen just must be. And you've done a lot for our city through all these years. So we well, it's my it's my it's my city. I, I was born right. here. I was raised here. I worked here. Um, I had the opportunity to be involved with Ed Snyder uh, from day one. 
and uh, it, it's uh, you know it's a dream. It's a dream to work in sports. It's a dream to um, have two Stanley Cup rings, to see the Flyers beat the Russians, the Kate Smith thing. Uh, just it's a wonderful thing. But I have to say, uh, he he was the man. Uh, I've never met a smarter uh, talk about creativity. He, you know, he, he graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in accounting. He had no interest in, in being an accountant. His first job out of Maryland was working for an accounting firm where they sent him to audit the books of a man who had several gas stations. And Ed came up with 20 ideas that this guy could do to make his business better. And the guy said, I'm not interested in any of that. Just do my books. And he went back to the office and he quit. <laughs> he said, he said, he says, I think my ideas are better than this guy. And I'm not going to tell other people what they should be doing. I'm going to do it for myself. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I know you, you were talking about the book um, on thin ice. There was talk at one of the chapters in there. They were talking about making a, a series, a TV series or a documentary. Any word or update on that? Is that something that was, is, was that true or is that something course it's true what would, yeah. would, would, I, would I lie yeah. oh, <laughs> um, awesome. I found that very interesting so well one of the chapters is the Jerry Wallman Ed Snyder feud which almost ended the opportunity to get the spectrum open to finish construction or, or to have the Flyers even play in Philadelphia uh, they had a terrible feud and uh, Ed wound up buying the Flyers from Jerry Wallman and gave Jerry Wallman, his share of the spectrum. So Wallman wound up with the spectrum and Snyder wound up with the flyers, but the feud was brutal. And um, I thought it might make, a, 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 I thought just running an arena would be an interesting TV show. You know, there are shows about police stations, law firms, the hospitals, casinos. I thought a show about an arena every week, what goes on in an arena? It's just not sports. You've got Frank Sinatra coming in and Hulk Hogan, and you've got uh, Elvis Presley and all kinds of things going on, boxing, wrestling, track. So um, working with Craig Snyder, Ed Snyder's oldest uh, child, we put together an idea for a show, and uh, we marketed it to some people in Los Angeles. And one of the people was uh, Adam Goldberg, who a Philadelphia guy from outside of Philly, uh, Abington, has a tremendously successful show on ABC called The Goldbergs, all about his family. And he's yeah. constantly referring back to when his dad would take him to a Flyers game or he watched Prism or he went down to the Spectrum. So we reached out to him and he said, oh my God, I love this. He said, send me all your stuff. But well, we were interested in a weekly show about, about an arena, a, a fictional show uh, based on true facts. And he said, what I want to do is the Wallman Snyder feud. He said, I think that would make an eight to 10 part series. He said, uh, it's about families. It's about nostalgia in the 60s. He said, and it's true. He, so we worked with him. I flew out to California to L.A. To, uh, with uh, Craig, and we met with him for several hours and, and uh, came back and put a show together. And uh, last September, it could have gone into production, but the pandemic killed everything. So it set us back a year. He still wants to do it. He's got several other shows backed up as well. So we're in the pipeline. Uh, it's not a guarantee. But we've done all the work, and uh, it, it could go into production in a matter of months if, if he gets the green light. We'll have to watch for that. Yeah, the for timing sure. with the pandemic, uh, not yeah. so fun. 
No. What was the basis of the feud? Well, that that's that's what makes the story fascinating. See, Jerry Woolman was a wonderful, wonderful guy, although Ed Snyder would not agree. <laughs> uh, and I, I loved them both, and it broke my heart to see them. Uh, I called them Damon and Pythias. They were the best friends. They were so good together, running the Eagles and getting the Spectrum underway and the Flyers, getting that franchise. And um, Woolman went under. He was building uh, the the John Hancock Tower in Chicago was going to be the largest, uh, the, the biggest building in America, tallest. And uh, he ran into severe foundation problems. They were up like nine or 15 stories already with superstructure, and they had to tear it all down because the uh, architect had mis, uh, uh, got misfigured um, uh, how long it took the concrete to cure that was the foundation. So the girders that were in it were were were, were um, coming uh, uh, slipping a little bit. You couldn't see it with the naked eye, but the engineers spotted it. And it turned out that they didn't wait long enough for the concrete to cure. And Jerry Wallman, uh, uh, John Hancock in Boston, which was uh, paying for the building, stopped paying, said, we, will, we don't want any part of a political issue. Uh, and Jerry Wallman then had to spend 20 to $30 million. Uh, this was 66 wow. uh, out of his pocket, every penny he had. And he wound up losing everything because the creditors wanted to be paid for things. So the, the only thing he cared about was keeping the Eagles. He didn't care about the Flyers, which had yet to play a game. He didn't care about the Spectrum. He didn't care about anything except the Eagles. And he, he admitted in his book um, that he, he might have been might have gone off a little bit out of desperation. And he was seeking money everywhere to um, pay off his debts and keep the Eagles. And um, he was in Vegas looking at some dark money. He was in uh, Paris talking to uh, sheiks. And finally, he said, look, I have a deal for $46 million, which was pay off my debts and I'll keep the Eagles. He said, but I need the Flyers franchise and I need the Spectrum in the package. Well, we didn't we didn't think it was true. We thought he was being uh, scammed. And um, he said a, an Arab um, uh, oil sheik uh, wants to buy, wants to, to, to loan the money, but insist that the flyers and Spectrum be included. And Ed Snyder said, look, we're about to open. You, you can't just give we don't have we don't have a right to give the franchise to somebody. Well, it turns out that Baltimore was going to wind up with the franchise. So Ed said, look, I'll buy it from you. And uh, Walman said, I can't sell it to you. He said, because it has to be in the package. If it's not in the package, I don't get the loan. And if I don't get the loan, I lose the Eagles. Well, he didn't get the loan. He lost the Eagles. Snyder wound up with the Flyers. Walman went bankrupt. The Spectrum went into receivership. And uh, they had a blood feud until the day they both died. So what did he end up doing after after that? Who, Jerry Wallman? Yeah. Uh, well, he, he went bankrupt. He went home to uh, Silver Springs, Maryland uh, with his wife and family, and uh, he got back into real estate. And uh, he made he made a, a killing at one point and tried to buy the Eagles back from Leonard Toes, uh, to whom he sold it. Toes, uh, according to Wallman, Toes had said, look, if you ever make it big, I'll I'll sell it back to you. Well, Toes denied that. There was nothing in writing. Wallman sued, uh, was thrown out of court, and uh, a Wallman wound up dying pretty much penniless. Same. Heartbreaking uh, story. He has a, he has a fast, he, he wrote a book, uh, his lawyer actually wrote it for him, a fascinating book called The World's Richest Man. 
And it's a wonderful story about a guy who basically gave away all his money. I mean, he made uh, Snyder a partner in everything he did, which gave Ed the, uh, the, the foundation to become wealthy. He made so many of his partners millionaires. And uh, he was just an extremely generous guy. Uh, some people said he just bought people, you know, bought their uh, loyalty and friendship. Ed was a different type of guy. Ed, uh, Ed was a no-nonsense businessman, uh, very concerned about the bottom line and running his organizations. I, I wouldn't say with an iron fist, but he was tough. Ed was tough to work for, as close as he and I were. I mean, we were drinking buddies. We ran around on town all the time uh, doing all kinds of stuff. And still, he, he would be, he'd be call me at 8 o'clock the next morning. Did you do this? Did you do that? How come about that? And he could drive you crazy, but he was a perfectionist and he survived and Wallman didn't. So were you put in the middle of that feud? Did you stay uh, friendly with Wallman also? I did. I did. I Look, I was a reporter. I was trained to look at both sides objectively and uh, I loved them both. Uh, like I said, I was brokenhearted over what happened and uh, I didn't take sides. And in fact, uh, some friends of Wallman tried to raise money, millions to help him. And I sent him a check for that for a thousand dollars. If my wife knew that she would have killed me back in the 60s because <laughs> I was making making like twenty thousand dollars a year. And here I write him a check for a thousand. And he wrote he sent it back to me. He said, oh, wow. uh, he said, I can't take your money. He says, I'm not taking anybody's money. He says, uh, I'm not taking money from people who really can't afford it. He said, besides, he says, your thousand dollars is like a, a, a drop in the ocean that I need, he said. so. Thank you so much. Take your money back. But I remained friendly with them. And you know, I had love for both of them. That's a part of the um, spectrum story that I didn't know at all. So Well, that's why you got to buy the book. I was Absolutely. just going to say, you could probably have all that's probably right in the book. So I'm excited for that book. On well, thin ice, on thin ice. That's exciting. So when when is the, the release of the book going to be? It would have come out already, but uh, my publisher said that uh, there's nobody in bookstores. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you can't do book signings and you can't make appearances. He said, let's wait till the, the fall. So I've looked at a couple of dates in the fall. And as I mentioned, the first event at the Spectrum was September 30th and 67. So maybe we'll come out September 30th or maybe October 19th, which was the Flyers' first home game in which they beat Pittsburgh Penguins one to nothing. Uh, and a funny story about the, that first game, October 19th, Bill Sutherland, uh, one of our um, players, couldn't get in the building prior to the game <laughs> get into the locker room because the guard didn't believe he was a hockey player. He, he, you know, we, he wasn't very big. Uh, and, uh, he turned out scoring the only goal that we won one nothing. But he, somebody, uh, another player showed up who looked French, Canadian and uh, was a big burly guy and said, no, no, he's, he's our center. You know, got to let him in. <laughs> That's so funny. That's awesome. And then it's not like you get a cell phone where you can call someone and be like, Hey, you know, cell phone. We, we were using carbon paper, we, uh, typewriters, big uh -huh. typewriters that weighed 50 pounds. Uh, everybody, you know, we had, we went out on the street or on a meeting. We took a dime so we could go to a pay phone and check back into the office. It was an innocent time. And like I said, we had nine employees in the front office, uh, including the coach and general manager. And um, I wouldn't say we didn't know what we were doing, but we it, we were doing something new. Look, this was expansion of a hockey league that had been together forever, six teams. And they added six more teams. And each team had to either build or improve an arena in its city in order to get the franchise. And... Um, 
like I said, Philadelphia had a negative history in hockey and we, we had to try and sell it. So uh, that's why I had the opportunity to do a lot of unorthodox things. You know, uh, one of the things I did, it was a small thing, but uh, shots on goal at the end of each period, they would announce uh, shots on goal in the first period, uh, Flyers uh, 12, Montreal 22. And the crowd would go, oh. So I thought, <laughs> why, why do we have to wait to the end of each period to announce this? So I ordered a sign and I had it put on each side of the the building uh, inside facing the uh, ice uh, up on uh, on the second level. And uh, I sold the rights to Tasty Cake in Philadelphia for $25,000 a year. And I said to the, to, to the official scorer, every time a shot is taken, hit this button. If it's a Flyers, hit, hit this button. If it's the visiting team, hit this button and it'll automatically go up on the, on the sign. Well, Clarence Campbell, the, the president of the league, called Ed Snyder and said, you can't do that. And he said, why not? And he said, well, it's never been done before. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we started doing wow. shots on goal as they occurred. You know, I said, what is it, boxing? You have to wait till the fight's over and you say who won? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, talk about uh, innovative. You had a lot of stuff going on before, you know, that before your time. It's pretty well, there was some stuff I did that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we gave out pucks. And I said, hey, let's, if we're going to give out pucks, don't do it at the beginning of a game because if the game goes bad, they'll throw it at, on the ice. <laughs> I said, let's give it out on, uh, give them out on the way out. You know, I'm, I'm, I figured I, I outsmarted this one. Uh -oh. So what happened was people were heading for the exits, getting a puck, going out and coming right back in the next door and trying to get another puck. Oh. So now the crowd's coming out, the crowd's coming back in, and everybody's, and then there's fights, fighter fights break out. I was going to ask that. And some of the ushers are getting beat up. Pucks are flying all over the place anyway. And I jumped in to help an usher, a, a, a security guy who seemed to be getting the worst of it. And, um, well, two things happened. I, I, I said to myself, never give pucks out before or after the game. Don't give out hockey sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give out things weapon. like that. But it, the silver lining of that whole thing was that because I just – didn't think and jumped in to help this guard, I became like the hero at the spectrum where all the guards would say, hey, there goes Lou Scheinfeld. He saved that. He was, you know, <laughs> dumb enough to jump in the middle of a fight. But but I've always treated people with kindness and compassion, uh, whether they were, uh, whether it was Ed Snyder or, or the janitor. And you get so much more out of that. We had, a, we had such a wonderful uh, organization. It was a family. Look, we were in a concrete bunker in South Philadelphia, underground, uh, in our office. You went in, it was dark. You came out, it was dark. <laughs> we didn't know if we were going to make it. We didn't know if we were going under. We didn't know if the Jerry Wallman Snyder thing was going to kill us. The Philadelphia Inquirer uh, refused to send a uh, reporter to any of our away games until we had a home crowd of 10,000 or more. Well, it took half the season before a weekend. I think it was Detroit and Toronto came in, or Detroit and Chicago, I forget which, on a weekend. And we beat them both, and we had like thirteen to 15,000 people at each wow. of these games. And the How inquiry was the said, back then? Top ticket was $5.50. Wow. Upper level was two fifty, and we didn't have big crowds. We had only seven thousand people at our first game, and I don't know how many of those actually paid for their tickets. So people would buy tickets. They still tell me I, I bought tickets for two fifty and came 
down to sit in the first row. (laughs) (laughs) But we did a lot of groundwork. One of our uh, owners, uh, Joe Scott, a minority owner of the fires, came up with the idea of giving tickets to private school students so that they would bring their parents who had to pay. And it re- it worked. He hired a team of kids who were on the phone giving away tickets to all the private schools in the Philadelphia area. And um, they would come to the games, but their parents had to buy tickets because these kids couldn't drive. And it turned out they became fans. Look, I, I had friends of mine who thought I was crazy for leaving my journalism job. And I invited them to the opening game, that October 19th game. And a few of them said, well, is it worth coming down? Uh, isn't it cold? Uh, do we need blankets? I said, it's a warm building. <laughs> You're not sitting outside, you know, and well, well, we'll try it. You know, well, thank you for taking my free ticket, but I would do anything to get what I say, putting butts in seats. And uh, they would come and they were hooked all of a sudden. All you had to do, if you watched on television, it was terrible. Black and white, small screens. You couldn't even see the puck. You didn't know what the heck was going on. Look, in our first year, Gene Hart was our public address announcer. And he would explain what offsides was. And he would explain what icing was. And we were teaching people. But once they saw it in person, they said, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. And they would buy tickets and come back. Uh, yeah, hockey's a sport that's definitely better live, you know, some you know, than watching it on TV. But Gene Hart, so how, how did he come around? I mean, obviously, he became an icon in Philly. And- well, Gene was um, not known in Philadelphia at all. He was a school teacher, uh, right. history or English in uh, Jersey, and a uh, high school teacher. And uh, he had a uh, sports show on WCAM in Camden, which nobody in Philadelphia paid much attention to. And uh, when we were hiring people, somebody said, if you need a public address announcer, this guy's got a good voice. Well, I meet Gene, and uh, Gene was wonderful wonderful man affable warm super intelligent sharp as attack i mean he 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 turned out to be a hero and when we um, started to televise our games uh, we put him with uh, Stu nahan as our announcers and gene just excelled he he was an encyclopedia he would do work he would sit on the airplanes uh, doing all kinds of statistics while uh, Stu nahan would smoke a cigar and have a beer and they didn't get along at all i mean gene got along but uh, Stu was very uh, he wanted to do the games himself. He did not want Gene Hart. Well, Gene turned out to be the most popular, most wonderful guy. Two quick stories about Gene. He and Bob Kelly got into a little uh, friendly discussion one day. And uh, Kelly said to him, you know what? You're fat. <laughs> <laughs> and Gene Hart said to him, I could always lose weight, but you're always going to be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Good story. I love that. <laughs> um, we were talking about the Spectre too, building up the momentum, and then the roof blew off. It must have been quite a setback as as everything started kind of falling together, and then you had the roof situation. You had to bring that up, huh? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a um, Saturday afternoon in uh, 68, January of 68. Now, we started in September, uh, October of 67, so it was only three or four months after we opened, yeah. and um, the ice capades was there for an afternoon show. And I guess it might have been like 10 or 11,000 people there. A lot of Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, church groups, you know, families. And uh, there was a windstorm outside, terrible windstorm. And the wind was blowing across the roof of the spectrum at, at such a ferocious pace that it created a suction as it went across the roof. And it lifted, it lifted the tar paper 
and insulation. The roof never came off. The roof, you could see through to the sky because the roof was perforated to absorb sound so that when the crowd roared at a concert or the music banged off the roof of the buildings, it didn't echo back down. So the tar paper lifted off. The insulation lifted off and blew all over the street and everything. Nobody got hurt. There was no panic. But the one thing, though, the uh, the Ice Capades Orchestra, they started playing Off We Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder. <laughs> <laughs> Just like on the Titanic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, it became a little bit of a political issue, and uh, but we fixed it. We patched it up, and I think three weeks later, it's another windstorm. It blows off again, only this time more. Well... Mayor Tate is running against Arlen Specter, and they both couldn't wait to close the building. They're both saying the building was closed. It's dangerous. It's this. It was never put together right. They didn't really have a permit to open it when they did. Uh, all kinds of stuff. Ed Snyder, who had stopped smoking, he was a four-pack-a-day guy who had stopped smoking for maybe a year. The day the roof came off the second time, he starts smoking. I mean, he went back to becoming a chain smoker, and he... He, he turned, I mean, I never saw a person turn white. I mean, pale white. He he was so upset and he's on the phone with his insurance company. Do we have insurance? You know, yeah. <laughs> because the building is closed now. Yeah. And it was closed. We were out of the building for 35 days. The Flyers played on the road over 35 days. We played our first home game at, in Madison Square Garden. We played the next one in Toronto. Then we moved to Quebec where yeah. we owned the Coliseum and the Quebec Aces, and we played our, I don't know, six, seven games up there. Well, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, a renowned um, institution, figured out how to fix that roof. Well, they put screws every couple inches throughout the entire roof. <laughs> that roof was never coming apart again. <laughs> and I watched the demolition of the spectrum, and I watched the roof, and they, the, the uh, excavators knocked out all the supports, and the roof came down in one piece. <laughs> it came down like a pancake, one piece, this whole roof, because those screws were never going to let that roof fall apart again. So I, I actually convinced that Snyder not to say that the roof blew off. Yeah. The insulation and the tar paper came off. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, did you have insurance? <laughs> yes, you we did have insurance. Oh, I don't think it covered the full 35 days, but it, uh, <laughs> look, we went through the mail every day to see if enough checks came in for season tickets and sponsorship money to see if we were going to get paid. And God bless Ed Snyder. I never missed a payday. I don't know about him, but yeah. the, those nine employees, the team, all the travel, he had excellent credit rating in Philadelphia. He was such an astute businessman. He had everything buttoned down. He worked his rear off. I never saw a guy that high up work as hard as he did. Well, it's nice that it all paid off and he, you know, had that legacy his his entire life here in Philly and will continue forever. So until the very end, he was the sharpest yeah. attack. Uh, he's always so good to the families and he's yes. created that family atmosphere in Philly and with the Flyers and stuff you just don't get today he created a very unique special experience for us like the kids growing up and and everything it's just he's incredible well ed snyder's first wife myrna was an angel hmm. i don't i don't know about the next three wives but the first <laughs> <laughs> i do know but i'm not going into it the, yeah we don't need to talk about the, that the first wife myrna snyder who bore him four children was the most wonderful kindest sweetest beautiful woman. I can't say I've ever known because I 
I'm on my second wife, so I don't want to say that. So. <laughs> but she was the reason for the family atmosphere at the Spectrum. She came down there almost every day and would have a cheery, beautiful hello, a kind word, a smile for everybody in the building. And it was Myrna who decided to have a Flyers wives room instead of the wives just sitting in the stands waiting for the players after the game or, or sitting there before a game, you know, because they would normally come over with the player early. She established the Flyers wives room and they had food and a TV and they would bring their kids and it created a family. Well, it became such an institution. Other teams started doing that and they had never done that before. So she gets the credit for doing that. And Ed Snyder just followed suit after they were uh, divorced, making it a family. And I know what he did for Bernie. And I, I know what he's done for other players and Bobby, you know, he sent Bobby Clark a, uh, a contract and, and said, fill in your amount. And, oh. <laughs> and Clark sent it back. You fill it in. <laughs> and then Clark finally filled it in and Ed said, no, it's not enough. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's the type of guy he was. Players used to kid Bobby Clark in the locker room that he was Ed Snyder's son-in-law. That, uh, <laughs> he's, he's taking good care of you. Well, <laughs> Clark took good care of us. Yeah, I was lucky enough. I got to go to the 40th anniversary of the Flyers, and I got to sit and talk with Mr. Snyder, and it was a great opportunity. I got to thank him for everything he's done for my family, and it was just, you know, just an amazing man that he took the time to sit and would tell me stories about my dad and how he sat on the edge of his seat and he could sit back and relax when Bernie was playing. But, you know, just, just an amazing man. I just, I, I'm really thankful I got that opportunity to, to thank him and you as well, Lou, thank you very much for, for everything you've done for, you know, for the city of Philadelphia and for the players and the alumni. And we got to get, get that museum going. <laughs> um, I can't wait to get drunk. <laughs> uh, well, you, now let me ask, we have a couple before we go. Were you, do you remember much of the parade or were you drunk the entire time? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't drunk. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was in the bus with the, some of the, the wives and, and some of the uh, staffers and people tried to break into our bus and they, they were uh, 50 people on the roof of the bus the whole way. Wow. <laughs> Both parades were incredible. And, and uh, you know, we were talking on my radio show about uh, Bertie uh, Perron had to uh, go to the bathroom at the parade, and they, they pulled, they pulled, they stopped the parade. Uh -huh. You know, there's two million people in the street, and they stopped the parade in South Philly on Broad Street, and Bernie gets out of the car, and six policemen surrounded him because the crowd was a little unruly with beer and everything, and they wouldn't have hurt him, but they would have mauled him, and that they actually, one of the cops handcuffed him to himself, saying, I, I'm not going to lose you. And he, I don't I don't think he went into the bathroom with him, but I, he got him into the house, this row house, which to this day is still marked as this is where Bernie Perron took a break yeah. <laughs> and and uh, got him back into the uh, and, and he said, Bernie said that all the beer and uh, the excitement got me uh, <laughs> He's moving. I had, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, because I know he was drunk the whole parade. <laughs> yeah. Well, he deserved to be. He, he put together two of the greatest years as a goaltender in the history of the league. And it's still acknowledged to this day. I just read that recently that the league and the experts still acknowledge that no goalie ever put back-to-back -back years together like he did before he got injured. 
Wow. And I said, uh, from what I hear, they probably could have won a, thir won a third cup, but he did get injured. Well, we, we went against Montreal that uh, in the third finals. And uh, he, I think Wayne Stevenson played instead of Bernie. You know, he, he took the stick in the eye and, and it blinded him in one eye and almost permanently. And uh, he never played again. That was yeah. the last game he ever played. And prior to that, he had a very serious neck operation. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that great of equipment. And the, the uh, slap shot with curved sticks had just come into vogue. And the, the goalies were getting rammed, you know, knocked down. And uh, it, it was a, <laughs> it's a rough sport. <laughs> well, the thing is, if he would have gotten that eye injury in today's day, there probably would have been some laser surgery to correct his peripheral vision, which caused him not to be able to play. So... They just yeah. didn't have that back then. The different game today. Uh, those guys, uh, there was no such thing as a concussion. You know, you yeah. got your bell rung, you get back in there. Yeah. Ed Van Am took a slap shot right in the mouth when he threw his body in front of the, the shot to oh. stop it. And he went off the ice. And I don't I don't know exactly, but I think he, I know he lost this several teeth and his lips were cut and his jaw. And all he said to the doctor as he stitched him up is, how fast can I get back out there? And he came back. He came back in the same game. Oh, that's today, guy, you know, that guy would have retired. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and one last question I have is, do you have a fondest or a memorable memory of each of our dads that stands out to you? Memory of what? Of my dad and Corey's oh. dad. Well, yes, your, your dad was, uh, I put him right up there with Gene Hart. Uh, sweet, that's the word I use when I think of your dad. Sweet, sweet man, decent, kind, always a smile, always an encouraging word. And in the parade, I said to him, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's night or night. We're, we're always on the end of our seats watching you guys play. And, you know, the, the, we're nervous. We can imagine how you are. And he said to me, oh, Lou, he said, uh, I, I look at you and Mr. Snyder up in the super box during games. I said, you're looking at us. He says, yeah. I, he says, after I make a save, I like to see how you guys react. I, I said, Wait, you're watching us. <laughs> we're watching you. So this day, Kim, you know, he's the sweetest man. Mm -hmm. he, he will give me a bear hug that will collapse my lungs and uh, he's got the both rings he likes to show his rings and you know after his eye injury he spiraled down uh he went uh, he had some bad times and uh, he made it back and and he is the most enthusiastic sweetest man i mean uh, for a hockey player pretty nice guy yeah and mr snyder was very helpful with getting him back back on his feet again so but all right, now, now about Doug, what do you have about Doug? He clowned around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Doug was the opposite of Bernie. And Bernie was like uh, Gene Hart. He studied things. And uh, Doug, uh, he laughed and they had fun. I mentioned on our radio show that he uh, hit when it was his turn to come in for practice. After uh, Bernie went off, he would sit on top of the crossbars <laughs> and just <laughs> try to block things with his legs. And he sang <laughs> and he laughed. Happy go lucky. Uh, look, you don't get to the playing the pros without being great and he was great Bernie of course overshadowed him and but Doug was always happy with a, with a laugh a smile and look you need guys like that to keep you loose because you know Bernie used to throw up before games he, he was so nervous really? I never knew that yeah he threw up on, I wouldn't say every game but 
a lot of games he would throw up. Uh, wow. I remember in Boston, we were up there for the uh, Stanley Cup finals and we were in the hotel lobby and a couple of Boston uh, punks were harassing him. You're going to get beat tonight. You know, you can't beat us. You're not this and that's not. And Bernie said, leave me alone. Let me alone. Get, get, get away from me. He was so nervous. And I came over and got between Bernie and these guys. Not that there was going to be a fight, but just to shoo them away. But he, he was visibly shaking. But he pulled it out. He pulled it out. We won in overtime on Clarkie's goal. That first game, that was the key game. And uh, he shut him out in the last game. But Doug was loose. Doug was loose. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Scheinfeld, for coming on, taking the time today. Well, it's not like I have a lot else to do. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you you had me on your show twice, so it was nice to have the tables turned. I actually learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. Like I could sit and talk to you for another three hours. Like. Well, look, today, oh, yeah. today, you know, under normal times, there's 20,000 people at every game and it's a money machine. Uh, everything is beautiful. They don't know the beginning. Uh, like I said, we went through the mail to make sure we were going to get paid. Right. Well, and if I think Kim and I, if we can dig through our, our dad's old closets, we could find an old mask or something for the Hall of Fame. We could help out. Just let us know. Dad, I'll, <laughs> I'll, come, I'll come pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thanks so much, Lou. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Right, Thanks, Lou. Have a good day. The Parant Favel Generation X podcast is powered by Biscuit Tees and Favel Fitness. Bringing you unique comfort and style while optimizing a healthy, organic lifestyle.